Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. Everyone is talking about indictments, and we will too. Like, why is there a C in that word? And why isn't it pronounced indictments? Or indictments, like a Hanna-Barbera character. Indictimently. <laughs> we'll talk with Springfield-based Merriam-Webster Dictionary's Amon Shea, pinch-hitting for Emily Brewster about indictments, reboots, and trademarks. And we'll talk with our resident legal es- expert, Western New England University's Jen Taub, about the actual Trump indictment. But first... Joyfully. Joyfully. Exactly. The joyfully thing. It, it, it does help. <laughs> it does help. It's spelled like it could be pronounced shoe fly, which would be awesome. I know. That would be if you're working maybe more fun. With vegetables would, and stuff. But. That, like, joyfully at least like gets closer to like what I estimate the German to be. Yeah, joyfully. I've been called Dr. Doom. <laughs> oh, no! The Grim Reaper. Ay, ay, ay. I like joyfully. If, yeah, like, if you like, ever want to feel like there's an alien invasion going on, just subscribe to Sue's team's Vegetable Notes, uh, which is a weekly uh, publication uh, that goes out to vegetable farmers. And every week, it's which insects are coming in on the winds, which diseases have been spotted in Massachusetts and which counties and so on. It, it's, it really, over the course of the summer, it really does sort of read like an alien invasion novel or something. Oh my this word. reminds me of the talk we had at Berkshire Botanical Gardens where their lead horticulturist were just, was just talking about all the things coming up from the South. And he's just like, these are my horror stories. Mm. Yeah. But, I mean, growers read this stuff every week. They rely so heavily on knowing what is coming, what's been seen, what's going on out there. Because they're just deep in their own farm. So it really is valuable to, to have that information. But you do have to learn to take it with a measure of... I don't know what, um, hey. some kind of optimism that the world isn't ending. So. Yikes. <laughs> a story from last week from the NEPM News Department's Adam Frenier with the headline, Case by Case, Experts Say Farmers May Be Able to Save Some Crops from Flooded Fields. It reads, Massachusetts agricultural officials and others are working with farmers to see what crops may still be saved and what can't. That's after fields across Western Mass were flooded in recent storms. The UMass Extension Program, which works with local farmers, has been a assisting those affected by the floods. The program director's Clem Clay says crops touched by floodwaters from rivers must be destroyed. And joining us is Clem Clay, the program director from UMass Extension Agriculture Program, the Center for Agriculture, Food, and the Environment. And Susan B. Shoifley, production agriculture leader with a specialty in vegetable production. So this is the story that we've been covering uh, since the floods of a few weeks ago. We're estimating that some 2,000 acres of farmland have been impacted by the flood. $10 million of damage that those totals could rise. We've talked with both the federal government via U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern. We've had on Senator Comerford, as well as some of the representatives on Beacon Hill. They've passed now both the Senate and the House $20 million in relief funds for farmers. We've talked with Ashley Randall from the Mass Department of Agricultural Resources. Tomorrow on the show, we'll have the USDA on, who is going to be helping out in regards to federal funding with farmer relief. But UMass Extension, it seems, is doing a lot of the work on the ground. For those who aren't familiar with what UMass Extension is, director of UMass Extension, Clem Clay, what is it? UMass Extension really exists to bring the the knowledge and resources of an academic institution, uh, science in particular, but research-based knowledge of all kinds, to practitioners who need them. Uh, And in our case, uh, you know, Sue and I and our groups are working primarily with farmers. The group I oversee also includes teams that work with 
with uh, with landscapers, nursery folks, greenhouse managers, turf managers, and so on. But uh, in Sue's group, it's really on the production agriculture side, uh, vegetable growers, uh, the fruit team is also under Sue's auspices. And then we have a crops, dairy, livestock, and equine group. And so all across all of those groups and audiences, we're really trying to make sure that the latest uh, science-informed practices are in use or that people understand the options that they have to use those practices in managing their businesses day to day. Is it just business or are you also the people that I send my soil to when I am starting my garden? We are the people you send your soil to when you're starting your garden. Yes. So we don't have the capacity to serve every resident of the Commonwealth in the way that we might like to uh, with with all of uh, our practice support. Um, so we do focus mostly on those who are trying to make a living from the land one way or another. But we do have some services such as soil testing and plant diagnostics that are fee-based services that are open to anyone. And uh, we also publish a number of fact sheets and other publications on our website that gets 100 or 200,000 hits a month. And people come there for uh, a lot of information and, and not just professionals. It's well, well worth it. We found in April when we were designing our garden to send the cup of soil and our small field off to Amherst to see what was going on in this new house that we bought. What was going on? What the, So what kind of data do you get back from UMass Extension when, when you, a gardener at home, Khalise, get it, you send it and get it back? Well, it tells you the components of the soil and the general neutrality of the soil. So if you need to correct for whatever you're planning on planting, like you have information on, on how to do that. And it's really, it's really neat. You get this little, little report and it's, it's wicked cool. <laughs> and we do ask you when you send in your sample to say what crops you plan to grow. And then right. the recommendations are customized for those crops. And if you're a gardener, it comes in that sort of per hundred square foot, how much of what you may need to add uh, to either change the pH or add certain macro or micronutrients. Uh, if you're a farmer, then you're getting recommendations by the acre. So they're adjusted based on the audience and the crop, as well as obviously the, the soil itself and how it tests out. That's Clem Clay, who is the director of UMass Extension, which you can send your soil to for a fee and they will give you an assessment. Now, Sue Shoyfully, who is also part of UMass Extension uh, and specializing in vegetable production, when the floods happened the other day, do you snap into crisis mode? Are farmers all over the valley and beyond sending you samples? Are you going out into the field doing samples right there at the farms or how does it work? I would first just say that uh, MDAR, the Department of Ag, really took the lead on making site visits to every farm impacted. The floodwaters, it's really a food safety issue. As you know, you mentioned in the intro that crops that are touched by floodwaters are considered adulterated. And so MDAR has a whole food safety inspection team and they're in touch with farmers all the time to make sure they're doing the right things as far as keeping our food supply safe from human pathogens, helping farms mitigate those risks. They took the lead on making sure that each farm was getting reported and they made visits with every single farm that was affected. And I just kind of helped out and visited those farms that I knew and could get to pretty quickly that day and just tried to help them fill in gaps. And what does it look like? Meeting with the farmer and talking through mostly yeah, what are the next steps, making sure they understand the risks associated with that water and what they can plan to do now. The timing of the floods 
I mean, there's never a good time to have a flood like that, for <laughs> sure. But um, folks were just getting ready to plant all their fall crops. And if you have floodwaters in your fields, you need to wait. The recommendations are to wait a certain amount of time before replanting to give the soil time to dry out. We're just running up against time now. There isn't quite enough time left in our kind of short growing season to wait for the fields to dry out and then plant fall crops like cabbage and carrots and beets and stuff as they take 60 to 90 days to grow. Having conversations with the farmers about what they can plant and if they decide they don't have time to plant, then what kind of cover crops can they plant to help the soil get back to healthy equilibrium faster. The rain hasn't stopped, so the fields are still quite wet. We just keep getting more rain. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing has a chance yes. to dry out. Exactly. There just hasn't really been a, a drying period and the fields are still muddy. So even if there isn't standing water, some of the equipment you need to harrow in a field get something else planted it gets stuck in the field or you know it's just it's not advisable to work in the fields when they're that wet so just hope for more dry weather that's susan Shoyfully, the production agricultural leader with the specialty in vegetable production from umass extension we're also speaking with umass extension director clem clay the headline from the nepm story by adam frenier that i referenced case by case experts say farmers may be able to save some crops from flooded fields and sue you said that you know it's ill-advised to be planting fall crops if the flood water is still standing there. I had heard that certain rivers were more polluted than others. So let's say you were a farm like Natural Roots in Conway and you're, you know, you're away from more urban areas. Is it a case-by-case basis where you could look at the floodwaters that have hit, say, whatever crops happen to be in the field, the lettuces and things on that day, and you're taking a sample and saying, okay, there's not so much human waste in this that we can't eat it? Is, is that the kind of research? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's, that's when you I say pathogens, that's, that's what you mean. I, I mean, mean. <laughs> but also, there's something about saying it out loud that where it really drives it home. Like, oh, no, this is what we're yeah. looking for and why we can't eat this now. Right. I always say the quiet parts out loud. So the, uh... did, our poop probably ruined all of the farms <laughs> here. But is, is it true that there are certain rivers that were less flooded and had fewer pathogens and maybe some of that stuff is available? And are you doing the testing with that or is that you and MDAR, the Mass Department of Agricultural Research? or a little bit of both. Clem Clay, the director of UMass Extension. I'm going to let Sue jump in on that one, if that's okay. (laughs) Sue has to take the poop question. Okay, Clem. (laughs) Yeah, so it's a good point. And the guidance that MDAR released is just that. It's guidance because the rules are about minimizing the risk and so the farmers have, you know, some discretion and we can just give them the best advice that we can. And well, if you know that, say, a sewage treatment plant was compromised and dumping poop into the river, then that's a higher risk situation, obviously, than if you're on a smaller river that doesn't have a sewage treatment plant upstream. You can consider that in your your assessment of your risk. Other things that you can take into account consideration is the risk of the crop. So some crops are considered higher risk, like leafy greens that are almost always eaten raw compared to something like butternut squash that's almost always cooked. That cooking step takes out a lot of the risk. Another example question that we get a lot is fruiting crops like peppers or tomatoes. If they didn't have fruit on them at the time 
of the flood and then the floodwaters recede and then they start fruiting, can you pick and sell those crops? And that's kind of a gray area where the farmer needs to think carefully about whether or not they can safely pick that crop without getting mud on their boots and then on their hands and then on the crop. So, you know, there are lots of cases where they might be able to do that and other cases where they can't. So the farmers do have discretion here and that's where our team comes in. And that's mostly what we're, what we're doing now is tackling these sort of what to do now questions. Coming up, we'll hear the latest figures through MDAR and UMass Extension about just how extensive the farm damage has been. And we'll hear how the agricultural disasters of this year may haunt our farms in the 413 for seasons to come. Such happy news. You're listening to the fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. More with the folks who've been using science and research to assist our recently flooded farmers, Clem Clay and Shu Sue Shoyfully from UMass. <laughs> we'll get it right. Her name is wonderful, but it's also hard to read. Yeah, from UMass Extension in Amherst. One of those what to do now questions, I think, actually doesn't involve the floodwaters. It's for the farms that managed to make it through the flooding mostly okay, but now we have this copious amount of rain, which brings with it other problems. Are you also seeing like some of the pathogens or, or sicknesses in the crops that seem to have fared all right that you would normally see in like due to wetness instead of the flooding? Yes, absolutely. We're seeing lots of not uh, human pathogens, but plant pathogens. And that's kind of more my background is in plant disease management and the wet weather is contributing to lots of plants just going down. We have in the valley uh, a soil-borne disease that affects all of the cucurbits, so winter squash and melons and cucumbers, but also peppers and um, to a lesser extent tomatoes. And that disease called Phytophthora blight is really raging now. It requires saturated soil conditions to start spreading and then it gets into the plant stem and the plants die back pretty quickly. So we're seeing a lot of that around the valley now in um, squash and peppers especially. There's a bunch of different diseases that affect tomato plants. Those are definitely starting to rear their ugly heads now. Managing those diseases is always a challenge, but again, because the soil is still wet, um, it's hard for folks to get in there with a tractor to spray. Other insect pests, you know, might not be better or worse because of the rain, but Again, they're just hard to control because it's hard to get into the fields. Sue Shufali, who's the production agricultural leader with the specialty in vegetable production from UMass Extension. I think when you talk about tomatoes and peppers, we have a garden in our backyard that has tomatoes and peppers. I'm sure there are a lot of gardeners who do. And you're talking about this saturated soil-borne disease. What should we be looking out for as individuals, even if we're not farmers? Is it dangerous to eat these or are they going to just look so blighted that we wouldn't even be considering trying to eat them? Yeah, so they're aren't really plant diseases that also cause disease in people. They're not bad for us, but they would cause tomato fruit to go bad more quickly, maybe if they have a spot on them compared to if they didn't. But mostly the the foliage, the leaves and stems will um, be affected and you could see leaf spots 
or in the case of like the soil-borne disease Phytophthora, the whole plant just kind of wilts suddenly. So we're seeing a lot of that wilting now. We have in the, the previous story that crops affected by the flooding are advised to be destroyed. How do the crops get destroyed? Like, are there different methods for getting rid of the crops that have been affected by the floods? What methods do we generally use? What methods are advised? So in a garden setting, you if you put them in a compost pile, they might not be fully killed and that might become a source of those plant diseases in the future. In my home garden, if I see diseases, I pull them out and put them in the trash. But as far as the commercial fields, if the crops were, again, affected by flooding rivers and are considered adulterated and advised to be destroyed, those usually get harrowed, uh, some kind of set of discs that just kind of chop the material up. Usually it's a series of just various kinds of chopping. <laughs> Sue Shufley from UMass Extension and the director of UMass Extension, Clem Clay. Uh, I was quoting earlier the NEPM story by Adam Frenier about estimates in regards to how many farms, how many acres of farmland, how much damage. You uh, at UMass Extension have updates to that information. Do tell. Sure. I did just consult with the Mass Department of Ag Resources this morning because, as Sue said, they've been taking the lead on on data collection for the flood events and uh, heard back from them this morning that the current estimate is 110 farms affected, 2,700 acres flooded, and 15 million in damage. And of course, that number, particularly the damage number, will continue to rise. As, as Sue described, we have these follow-on effects, things like diseases that may be indirect effects of the flooding, but could add up to many millions more in damage that just isn't as directly attributable to the flooding, but is still uh, in large part a result of it. But that's that's the current estimate from from the Department of Ag Resources. If I could mention as well that we too currently are surveying still back from the freeze events of February and May, uh, which I'm sure I know you covered and we don't have to go into that, but we have a similar amounts of damage being documented across Massachusetts from those events. So it has been a really difficult year for farmers uh, related to climatic events in, in a number of ways. And we're really pleased to see yesterday that uh, the House and Senate, as you mentioned, both passed and the governor signed yesterday morning a $20 million relief fund as part of a supplemental budget. So we look forward to just helping to get the word out. We won't be involved in administering those funds. Uh, MDAR and uh, administration and finance will, but we're pleased to be able to educate farmers about that option because there are not very many other options that provide direct financial relief. And most growers are saying that that's part of what they really need because the losses are so great this year. However, we are going to hear from USDA tomorrow uh, on the show because they have declared a federal emergency that those funds may be able to be more directly given out to the farmers for their direct needs as opposed to FEMA funds, even though we may have tipped the balance. It's not an infrastructure. It's not a road or a bridge that these farmers have lost. And most cases so that, that we're trying to figure out all the ways that farmers can be served here. And UMass Extension, who takes the, the knowledge of a research facility like UMass and applies it in real life circumstances to agriculture, even to homeowners like Calise, about how uh, well their soil is doing. You have mentioned these other two huge agricultural events this year. In your time at UMass Extension, are these type of events escalating in a way that is giving you pause? And how is UMass Extension bracing for a future with our own human-caused climate change that we may be facing 
these type of events year after year after year. I'd be happy to let Sue speak to that from a, an on-farm, uh, how we're advising farmers to, to deal with those uncertainties and, and challenges in the future. Generally, we are eager to help and to confront these challenges, but sometimes they are so big that they require solutions beyond what research-based support can can offer. And so it's really an all-hands-on-deck situation, and it's been gratifying to see everybody, as you mentioned, all the agencies at the state and federal level, as well as Extension, try to pitch in and figure out how to help out in these emergency situations, but also try to look towards building a more resilient food system. And I think that does require the kind of things Sue could speak to in terms of on-farm practices that build resilience at the farm level. Uh, and that has to be resilience to both d- dryness and wetness and flooding and, and freezing. And there's so many different types of events that you need to be resilient to. It's quite challenging. But it also requires uh, looking at financial and risk management tools and whether the ones that are available are going to take us into the future. Sue Schoifele, do you want to add anything to that? I would. I would add, I've been here at UMass Extension for 10 years, and I do feel like in my time here, I've seen, you know, farming was never an easy job, but in the last several years, we've had one extreme weather event after another. Last year, we had a drought. The year before that, we got seven inches of rain in August. I hope that this year is kind of a wake-up call for those who can support farming in Massachusetts and New England. Farming is risky, especially with vegetable growers. The margins are so slim already. I just feel it's it's not quite fair to put all of the risk on the individual grower. We need to find ways to support our farming community every year and have policies that address this as a bigger picture issue and not one event at a time. Speaking to that, Clint Clay, I have a, a question about the extension because I didn't realize you're still looking at the data from the frosts, maybe about three weeks out from the flooding. Do you expect through basically the fall and maybe the early parts of the winter to still be looking at data from this flooding and from the wet conditions that we've had so far? Yes, I think so. And as I mentioned earlier, I think the as you get further from the event, it gets harder to trace the effects directly to a single cause. There's multiple causes. So Sue mentioned Phytophthora and farms are having problems with that post flooding, the farms that were flooded, but it's been a very, very wet year. So other farms are also having trouble with that. So it will get harder and harder to tease out what's flooding and what's the wet year. And, you know, we have likewise in, in fruit orchards. We have frost damage to tissue that is then making disease more likely to spread. So it does get more difficult as time goes on to directly trace back to a single event. But as a contributing event, we will see this set of floods in July have effects not only for the rest of this year, but really into future years that, you know, some of the disease problems that Sue mentioned are ones that will be resident in these fields and affect the crop choices that farmers make for five or more years. And so that's a really, that's a really big deal for some of these growers who have a specific rotation that they're used to using that's good for the soil and good for their markets. uh, And they won't have access to some of those options for quite a while. Well, I'm trying not to be depressed now. I know, I'm so sad. It's not your your fault, UMass (laughs) Extension. Sue, you wanted to add something? 
Yeah, you did ask about what we might do in the future to address these concerns. And another thing that uh, we do at UMass Extension is applied research. So things like variety trials and things that are like very directly applicable and adoptable by growers. So on my team, we're starting to do more experiments on things like heat mitigation and irrigation technology that can help in a dry year to be more efficient with your water use. So hopefully those kinds of things can be uh, directly helpful to farmers. And we'll actually have a tour of the research farm and and twilight meeting coming up August 16th for people to see those uh, things in action. Well, that ends our conversation a little more joyfully. Sue Shoyfully from UMass Extension, <laughs> Perfect. who is an expert in vegetable production and UMass Extension's director, Clem Clay. Thank you so much for explaining how the work that you've been doing has been dovetailing with MDAR and the other agencies. And it's amazing to have an incredible research facility like UMass in our backyard here in the 413 available not only to help our farmers, but to help homeowners like Calise with their own gardens. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Later in the show, Western New England University's Jen Taub on the most recent Trump indictments. But up next, Ammon Shea from Merriam-Webster in Springfield on why the word indictment is so hard to spell. Where did that C go? You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Any words start trending because of the indictment uh, yesterday? You know, indictment always trends. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're waiting for the day when that's not the case, when people aren't just looking up indictment because there's constantly a barrage of them in the same way that all the farmers in the area are waiting for the weekend when we don't have rain. Mm. I mean, indict is kind of an interesting word, You know, interesting to word people. The question is, why do we not pronounce the C? Why don't we pronounce it indict? which is because uh, something to do with French. When indict first came into English, it was uh, spelled I-N-D-I-T-E because it came from a Norman French word, enditer. Uh, there was no C in it. However, at some point in the 19th century, scholars said, well, actually, it comes from indicere, which is a Latin word. It has a C in it. If you look back far enough, it did have a C in it. So we should spell it with a C to reflect its Latin heritage. And then we started writing it with a C, but it was already set in pronunciation. And so we didn't include the C then. So I shouldn't feel bad that I spell it incorrectly every single time. You're still spelling it correctly. <laughs> Em <laughs> and Shay is our Earthsats Emily Brewster word nerd filling in for Emily Brewster, who's on vacation from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield, the author of several amazing books about usage in the English language, as well as the former host or co-host of the podcast Word Matters that emanated from New England public media. And one of the things you do for Merriam-Webster, Emmon, is look at words that are trending, like indict. And what are some other words over the last week that have uh, caught your attention? Uh, reboot was one of the words that kind of jumped out. And reboot jumped out because the campaign of Ron DeSantis uh, was widely said to be rebooting, giving itself a fresh start. Oh, what is that? An icy? Yeah, that's probably a lot of sugar, huh? And reboot is like many of the words that we find in today's use. Uh, it came up first as a computer term, both as a noun and as a verb. 
we've been using Reboot for uh, computers since the 1970s. And this was uh, from Boot, which was to load a program into a, a computer from a disk. And that Boot is actually a shortening of Bootstrap, uh, hmm. which was a computer routine consisting of a few initial instructions by means of which the rest of the instructions are brought into the computer. We've been using Bootstrap to refer to computers since the 1950s. So you're trying to tell a computer to pull itself up by its bootstraps? <laughs> Basically, yes. Yeah. So, so I, I think in a certain sense, you could say, that Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign is rebootstrapping itself right now. It is trying to pull itself up by its own yes. programming. <laughs> and then we hear about reboot when it comes to, you know, movie and intellectual properties and television shows. So it loses the computer terminology. It means that we're going to start this thing all over again. As with many cases, uh, you know, something had a, a very technical sense and then it moved into general usage. This is not at all uncommon. I would say that reboot is more often applied to non-computer situations than it is to computer ones. Well, you haven't used the computers here at New England Public Media. <laughs> <laughs> we have to reboot frequently. Was, was reboot always intended to basically be a parallel to refresh? You mean for a computer? Yeah, or, or in general, mean... because I think you could use refresh for what's happening with series that get a, a reboot, and you could use refresh there, and it would basically mean the same thing? I think it does generally mean to refresh, but also to give something a new start. Do you mean the same thing when you say refresh that the Hollywood executives mean when they say we're going to reboot the franchise? Maybe. But I, I think it's a relatively broad definition because people probably use it in a lot of different ways. We're speaking with Ursat's Emily Brewster, word nerd Ammon Shea from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield, and talking about words that are trending, which is one of his fortes for merriam-webster.com. What's something else that has tripped the radar of the uh, dictionary, Ammon Shea? Trademark was also a little bit in the news because, uh, as some of you may have heard, the company formerly known as Twitter uh, recently announced they would be called X. And after they announced this, it was found that a number of other concerns had trademarks for the letter or the name X in seemingly relevant territories, such as the fact that Mark Zuckerberg's Meta already has a trademark on X for social networking services. It should be understood that, that when we cover words like this, we have no skin of the game, so to speak. We, we, we do not have a preference as to who gets the trademark X or not. We are just kind of interested in talking about the word trademark and the way that people use the word. And we define trademark as a noun, as a, a device such as a word pointing distinctly to the origin or ownership of membership to which is it applied, legally reserved to the exclusive use of the owner as a maker or seller. And I, I think one of the things that people find interesting about trademark is not so much the word itself, but that how many words that we use in everyday speech and writing started off as trademarks. And, and some of them like Hoover, the vacuum cleaner, which became used as a general term for vacuum cleaner in England. Those, those are well known. Band-Aid, though, is a, a trademark, as was Jungle Gym. And, oh, I didn't uh, know that one. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, heroin. Wow. Whoa. That's, yeah, that's yeah. a new yeah. one to so, me. Some of them are a little bit out of left field. You know, there's Moxie. Wait a minute. You know? Who goes against um, a trademark for heroin? <laughs> you can make a legal trademark for an illegal drug or with the drug legal when it they put in the It was probably legal at the time. It, it was very much legal wow. when it first came up. 
Uh, Moxie, uh, everybody's favorite New England soda, is a trademarked product. It was a soda, and then after the soda use, it, it came to have this other meaning. It's kind of vim, pep, verve. It might also be the name of uh, a child of another word nerd. <laughs> Strange but true, yes. <laughs> so, and Kleenex. There's lots right. of them that we use a lot. But here's the, the distinction that I always get confused with, and I'm sure other people do too. Trademark versus copyright. How does the dictionary differentiate what is a trademark versus what is a copyright? When do I use TM under what I want to trademark? And when do I use C in a circle? Uh, you know, it, it, I, I don't know when you use one or the other, but a copyright is a, it's an exclusive legal right to publish, sell, or distribute the matter of something, such as literary, musical, artistic work. You compare that to trademark, which is... I think the device itself, such as a word pointing distinctly to the origin or ownership of merchandise. So you could copyright, uh, you know, to be honest, I don't really know. <laughs> I was just trying to fly off the, the seat of my pants based on definitions, but I, I don't know the difference. And then when you get into the actual, the legality of all this, it gets even more convoluted. Mm. So <laughs> yeah. we'll just hope that the letters of the alphabet are not available for billionaires to have exclusive ownership. Along these lines, there was a post that I saw about this whole, like the changing of the name and the rebranding, where they're moving from having tweets to having posts. And the person was making the point that the service previously known as Twitter was the only social media service to make a verb enter the dictionary. And why would you remove yourself from that kind of clout? We do have a definition for tweet, which is a post made on the Twitter online message service. You know, uh, something I, I thought was interesting, there was was at least an article, I think, on this in which people said that was this enviable sort of clout that they had achieved. And they said that while linguists might, you know, scorn this or whatever, it was amazing that this brand had made their name into a, a legitimate English word. And one of the things that all the linguists that saw that said is, man, we think it's great. I mean, it's amazing the way that language works. You know, linguists and people who study or write about language do not look at the shifts and changes in language, typically, and say, that's horrible. We tend to look at it and say, boy, that's really interesting. Um, it's strange and, and, and magical the way that language will move and shift and change before our eyes. It's great. And our job is to keep track of how language changes. If language didn't change, there would be no need for dictionaries. We need to keep Ammon Shea and Emily Brewster in business here. <laughs> right. Keep changing that language. <laughs> that's then, since Twitter has changed its name to X and tweet is what we used to, I'm going to start well, calling it exting right, instead see, of tweeting. Here, here, How about that? Here's You're going to get into here, trouble that way. If I start exting people? <laughs> yes. Here's what I think is lovely about this from the perspective of somebody who pays attention to language and the way that people use it. Individuals, whether they are billionaires or not, actually have very, very little control over how other people use language. The English language is the property and sole possession of the people that speak and use English everywhere. And they're the ones who have control over how the language works. And we see this time and time again that people say, well, we shouldn't use the word that way. And the people who use the words, they use it the way that they want and the language will change. And a great example of this was back in 1924, somebody started a contest because they thought we should have a word for somebody who does not abide by the laws of prohibition. There ought to be a word for that. And so this very, very wealthy industrialist in, in, in Massachusetts named Delsevier King ran an ad in the Boston Globe saying, I'll give uh, $200 to whoever can come up with the best word for somebody who uh, doesn't abide by prohibition. 25,000 people sent in uh, submissions. Some really 
horrible suggestions like uh, uh, Patronaut and Booslevik was my favorite. And Booslevik is a great, I gotta love that great, one too. I gotta, that's right, word. Right. Like right. two people sent in the same word, which ended up winning, and that word was scofflaw. Ah. And so these two people both won two hundred dollars. And the the Boston Globe made a big announcement. The the word for this is is scofflaw, and it's a huge success, except for the fact that pretty quickly uh, prohibition was repealed. Uh, <laughs> there was no need for this word anymore. And almost immediately what happened is people just said, ah, we like the word. We're going to use it for somebody who doesn't pay their parking tickets <laughs> and stuff like that. And so this man, Delsevere King, decided we ought to have a word. He put forth his own money, put up his own, his own coin. Great success, great marketing. They came up with a word, huge hit. And then the word immediately changed meaning. <laughs> Do you think he was happy about it? Probably not. Does he have anything to say in the matter? Absolutely not. And I use Scott so, Law every week, I think, when I jaywalk right. in downtown Springfield. Right. <laughs> Quickly, so, like you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. So I think that tweet will exist completely based on the whims and inclinations of the English-speaking people, rather than on any business decision. If Tweet's going to make it or, or not, it's not going to be because somebody has changed a, a trademark. I think it's fascinating the way that we use words and the way that the dictionary that happens to be in our backyard in Springfield chronicles the usage of words and the interest in words via what's going on in uh, current events. And the fact that you're you're out there watching that M&J is, uh, is fascinating to me. It's endlessly fascinating to us as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for pinch hitting over those last couple of weeks. The We've got one more left with Ammon. We do? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. I was ready to no, you, kick you out, like, to give you the is, boot, but this now is we'll what reboot it with for our, next week. This is what happens with our show. Like, time doesn't really mean anything oh, yeah. anymore. <laughs> all our memories are maybe about a week long. Oh, good. I'm excited to see what starts to trend this week, because yeah. there's definitely nothing in the news. No. No, absolutely nothing in the news that could cause people to look up certain words. Up next, we'll hear about the news that is certainly causing spikes in lookups of the word indictment. We'll talk with our legal expert, Western New England University's Jen Taub, about Trump's most recent legal troubles. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're joined by our regular indictment correspondent, or I'm thinking we might just start calling her our lawyer, Jennifer Taub. <laughs> A legal scholar and advocate whose writing focuses on follow the money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. She's the author of the book Big Dirty Money. She's testified before Congress on banking law. She's been on MSNBC and CNN. Professor Taub is a graduate of Yale and Harvard Law School and teaches law at Western, Uni Western New England University School of Law. She is the host of Booked Up, a podcast about and with authors. Thank you so much for joining us again, Professor Taub. This is beginning to be like clockwork. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and as you know, listener, 24 hours or so ago, Trump was indicted again. But, and we're going to talk about that. But you were listening to our conversation with Werner and Amon Shea, and you know the difference <clears throat> between copyright and trademark as a lawyer. Do tell. Yes, they're, they're both uh, types of intellectual property, which you've heard, and they're 
both intangible rights and we often associate them with with things that we think are creative but beyond that they're totally different um so a trademark is a word name image sound used to identify and distinguish your goods or services from someone else's in the marketplace so think of it as a brand right um and the difference is copyright is a prote legal protection that attaches to creative um, works uh, that are expressed, create cre creative works that are it fixed in a tangible medium of expression. So basically, like trademark would be like the the name of a band, but copyright applies to the song of that the band makes. So everybody should have been looking right. up trademark yeah. instead of copyright when it came to the X for Twitter. Yes. But what becomes confusing is that, you know, that um, typically there's some categories of things that can't be copyrighted, um, such as um, like the name of a, a book. Uh, but, you know, in theory, it could be trademarked. The also what's, what's different is that um, a copyright, um, a copyright can kind of automatically attach. You don't have to file file anything to add any additional um, ownership rights. The difference is that if you do um, file for copyright protection, it means that you would um, have an easier time um, collecting from someone who uses, um, you know, uses it, um, that there was statutory protection, uh, statutory like payments that way. And then like when it comes to a trademark, and this is maybe what the X thing that you're talking about is trademarks only, um, trademarks gain protection based on usage. I used to do some trademark law. My clients would say to me, can you trademark this word for me? I'm like, no, you go trademark it. Because <laughs> it's it's when you use it, when you, when you, when you create that power by associating it with your goods and services, but you can file in order to get, um, again, and again, with trademarks, you don't, need to file it but what filing at the at the patent trademark office gets you is nationwide protection even if you're only using it across state lines or from you know on the internet or whatever you can get nationwide protection but you only get your trademark protection in the class in in the in a class particular classification so for example if i have the name apple to describe a piece of fruit that actually is an apple that's you know generic and that's not going to be prohibited if i started coming out with software that i called apple i would be in a lot of trouble because that's already you know branded and so on but um, if there was a record label called apple before no no i'm just kidding. i mean no yeah. but that's exactly, <laughs> exactly why i mentioned that i thought you'd i thought you'd bite <laughs> I, oh, I do no. bite they do all join in in the end <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> That's Jen Tob, our lawyer. Um, and we are weighing in. Not on your lawyer. I'm not your lawyer. Okay, no, no. So this is not like, you know, lawyer client privilege. And our local legal counsel. Yes. Local anything you tell me right now, because I'm on the radio with you, is subject to the privilege. Okay. There we go. That's a um, joke, you guys. Right? So Think about it. It is. Somebody who is uh, putting a good foot forward and trying to trademark the word indictment is the former president <laughs> of the United States. A third criminal case against the former president amidst multiple civil cases. This one, a four-count indictment in regards to working to overturn the 2020 election. Jen Taub, as a legal expert, which of these four, uh, both as a legal expert and maybe as an American, is the most troubling to you? Um, troubling that it was included or troubling that he arguably committed these offenses? Troubling that he arguably committed these offenses or that it was included. I mean, from a legal expert, there's a, you know, the, the right 
is looking at this as a travesty of freedom of speech if you read right-leaning um, publications. Okay, all of it bothers me. <laughs> um, and uh, the I think what if I find, and I'll address the free speech piece of it in a moment, but all of it troubles me because I very much, um, I'm a very emotional reader. Like, I think I've said to you guys, like, I'm half human, half lawyer. Um, and this got in the way of my going to law school because, like, I literally had nightmares. I would take towards class and, like, a wall would fall and someone would get crushed or whatever. And I would have nightmares about the people in my cases. Now I tend to be less affected by the cases I've read a million times. But when I read through this indictment last night when it came out, I was reliving that experience we had in January of 2020 and the violence seeps from the pages. And instead of actually being at all gleeful, which I have been sometimes in the past, like I was totally gleeful when there was the raid on Mar-a-Lago, and I'm going to call it a raid. I don't care if it was a search warrant um, search, but uh, I was gleeful about that. But this depressed me yesterday because reading this reminded me of what happened at the attack on the Capitol. And it reminded me that it's been like two and a half years since then. And it reminded me that if Merrick Garland had only appointed Jack Smith or a special counsel in March of 2021, this would have happened like a year ago when we would have been through this trial. And it reminded me that hundreds of millions of people in this country believe what they're hearing, like you mentioned on Fox News and elsewhere, that somehow this is a travesty of justice. And I worry um, about the various paths that lay ahead. And I don't like to talk about all of them because they're frightening. Um, but there we are. So when I read this indictment, it was, it was, I'm glad it happened. Should have happened earlier, needed to happen. But my goodness, um, what, how depressing. We'll talk about the free speech element of it because John Daniel Davidson writing in The Federalist saying that the DOJ indictment of Trump is a declaration of war against American voters. The idea that our Justice Department can indict someone, especially the sitting president's main political rival, over speech that's protected by the First Amendment is simply insane. What's your take as a what a on, on that? What a flipping joke. Thank and, you for not uh, swearing. I, 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 I didn't swear. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and it is inaccurate if you this indictment does the opposite in fact it actually tips its hand to that kind of criticism early in the description in the description of the facts um this indictment or i should say probably in count one when it kind of walks through and this is the, the 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 big beefy count which is conspiracy to defraud um the united states this is the one saying that donald trump knowingly combined, conspired, confederated, and agreed with his co-conspirators to try to um, obstruct, impair, and defeat the, you know, the function of government that where we collect and count the votes. So in that, in that section where they talk about what went down, the indictment explicitly says there's, you know, there's nothing unlawful um, about, about lying. I mean, it says, you know, that's, um, there's nothing, there, there's no crime. Um, the things that they said were false. The place that where um, things that he did um, turn from merely freedom of speech and, and access to um, access to the courts to actual crimes, though, is when he was when he was when he had moved to try to use unlawful means um, to discount legitimate votes and subvert the election. So it says that. So what does that mean? Um, you know, when he was lying in furtherance of 
getting people to participate in the false elector scheme or when he was pressuring uh, Vice President Pence to exceed his legal authority and go, you know, go ahead and reject or return the votes. Um, And then, you know, we have in here that he said, you're too honest to Pence. At that point, he wasn't just lying. He was trying to facilitate the, you know, facilitate the defeating of our um, of our voting process and then do all the other things that he's accused of all of the four counts. And to me, the most significant one is that um, that last one, um, which is to um, to interfere with our right to vote and have our votes counted. You know, you can't um, I can walk around saying lies about anybody. Um, I can do that. Right now, I could talk about any candidate for office, but you know that if I'm within a certain number of feet of the voting booth, have you ever, you voted, yes. right? And there's rules about you can't wear candidate t-shirts inside of the voting booth. You yep. can't, um, you can stand out at the you know edge of the street and put your signs up, but you can't be inside the voting facility. This is the same thing. We have all kinds of time, place, and manner restrictions on speech because otherwise you, you would be interfering with someone's right to vote. You can't take a bullhorn into, you know, the voting booth and say, only idiots would vote for this candidate. Now, you, I could get arrested for doing that. And I could say on Fox News, they're persecuting me. Um, I have the right to say who I want to vote for and everyone could nod their head, but I don't have the right to do that inside of the voting booth. And similarly, you don't have the right to use your voice to, for example, tell the, you know, secretary of state in Georgia, uh, make up the votes. And I, you know, you can't say find 11,700 votes because I won anyway. At that point, you're speaking. You're, that speech is not protected because you are committing a crime. And it, it seems like we may hear from Georgia early this month. So you may be our indictment correspondent yet again, our legal counsel. Quickly, before we run out of time, Kalise had a question for you uh, in regards to your booked up podcast, talking to a Barbie author. <laughs> so Ken gets up to a lot of shenanigans in the Barbie movie. Is there anything he does in the movie that would be indictable? Well, uh, you may notice, Khalees, that both Ken and Barbie were actually taken into custody twice. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. that's right. And it was really unfair because the first time Barbie had um, someone, you know, I think it was self-defense. Someone had touched her without her consent and she punched him. Facts. Um, so that was that. Yeah. And secondly, but yeah, I, I think that he I think Barbie, if anyone is, is going to be in trouble because of the things that she did to distract the men so they couldn't vote. Oh, <laughs> That's true, too. I didn't even think about that. Our Barbie and Trump indictment correspondent, Western New England University professor Jen Taub, thank you so much. I'm afraid we'll probably have you on again soon for similar reasons. Tomorrow, we'll welcome the USDA to talk more about assistance to the farmers. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. See you tomorrow.